Hi, my name is Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and here's all the key news in the world of battery materials this month. Welcome to November's edition of Recharge, the podcast by Battery Materials Review. I am delighted to welcome my co-presenter, Cormac O'Lara, MD of Electrios Energy, to run through some of the key talking points from October. So, Cormac, new job. Tell That's us about right, it. yeah. Well, finally got into the uh, recycling space, an area I've always been interested in. And I've joined this startup out of Singapore called Green Lion, who have a very interesting recycling technology. So it's uh, what we call third generation recycling. So first generation was black mass, basically the cobalt metal. And then second generation is black mass to the sulfates. And now third generation is black mass to PCAM. So uh, very excited about it. It's going to be a very busy year ahead. That sounds great. And the role is sort of global. You're talking to people in all regions. Yeah, I'm going to be based out of Singapore, but spending a considerable amount of time here in the first six months or so here in Europe as we uh, get get it up and going here. Brilliant. Okay. So uh, anybody who wants to buy uh, recycling technology, call Max, your man. That's it. You know how to find me. Excellent. Okay. Quite an interesting, uh, well, let's call it five weeks since uh, we're recording a little bit later than normal this month. Lots of stuff going on in China. So why don't we start there? Lots of stuff going on in China. Well, yeah. So we're seeing a lot of these alliances between battery makers, cam makers, anode makers in China, where they're building what they're calling industry bases, where you have a number of players based in the same uh, area, location, or uh, same industrial state, vast areas, 500 hectares or larger, producing all the components in the one spot. And uh, this is not something we're really seeing outside China. So sort of starting with PCAM and going all the way up to cells? Uh, some of these bases are are being built close to the uh, Spodumin Hard Rock locations in Jiangxi, Guangxi, some in the Brine regions. They're attracting the, at that stage, they're attracting lithium uh, converters, lithium miners, PCAM, of course, and battery makers. So it's actually provinces are trying to become battery hubs and they are offering incentives for the players to kind of set up there. So it's so kind of a bit similar to what sort of Ontario is trying to do in Canada or Quebec to some Yeah, yeah, that is a good analogy. Yeah, you have Ontario and Quebec relatively close. You have the uh, the cathode makers setting up in Ontario. Obviously, you have the lithium miners in in Quebec, and you have a couple of graphite projects yeah. chucked in there, I believe. Uh, and, and then you got the, the renewable energy in in Sudbury as well. So yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah. There is a uh, I'm calling a cathode cluster in Ontario. That's a good name, cathode clusters. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, and we're not really seeing that in Europe. Maybe Finland a little bit, Norway. It's kind of clusters, but real positive announcements, and especially in Ontario. you got Pasco, for example, Umicore. You have BSF, real companies that have made cathode materials before, making quite sizable announcements. Most of them are pre-IRA as well, Inflation Reduction Act. Good analogy or, between what's or, happening in or China. the Inflation Non-Reduction Act. We'll, we'll see. <laughs> that, uh, <laughs> we won't complain about that because apart from that, I quite like the act. But uh, anyway, oh, well, that's great. And in China itself, still seeing a lot of capacity announcements this month. 
Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. New players again emerging. Just you, just when you think there's no room for any more battery makers in China, there's a couple of vertical integrations and lateral integrations, and new names are entering the fray. With like, I'm looking at one here, Shihong Group, making 50 gigawatt hours with a 20 billion RMB investment. So keep an eye on them. And it's it's hilarious because you know in the Western world when sort of somebody comes in from nowhere, they could very well be delayed or, or or not happen. I mean, we have obviously seeing issues in in the UK at the moment with British Vault struggling with its its funding because obviously the development runway is a lot longer than people people assume for a cell manufacturing facility. I mean, North Vault found this out itself, and you know other startups have in Europe, but in China there's so much free capital, almost free capital sloshing around, a lot of these startups will end up starting up. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure they're a startup. They could be like a... Uh, well, battery startups. So yeah, they could be a cotton <laughs> a cotton grower. You know, they, mm-hmm. uh, some, most of them are already listed in industry, uh, industrial groups. But yeah, well, yeah. We're seeing We're seeing that a lot in upstream. We're seeing a lot of, for instance, uh, cement manufacturers transitioning into lipidolite mining and sort of areas oh, like yeah, that. Yeah, and, yeah. And, I mean, a really interesting uh, cement manufacturer transitioning into LFP um, cathode production uh, I saw six months ago. So we do see a fair amount of that all the way up the, the value chain. I think I remember the same cement one a couple months ago, but I'm noticing I was uh, posting a lot about the LFP plants, China's large capacity. And this month, I'm just looking at my uh, little cheat sheet here, there's like mm. five of these LFP cathode facilities have been commissioned. So a year later, these companies that weren't involved in LFP before have commissioned the, the, the cathode plants already. And that's, you know, when you see these announcements in China, you got to take them seriously. Yeah, I mean, that's very, very, very rapid. I mean, you know, a Western plant could easily take four or five years to build LFP cathode plant or a cathode plant of any incarnation. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, they don't muck around in China. And I mean, we're seeing that on the cell side as well. It could take 12 to 18 months to construct a cell plant, obviously a little bit longer to ramp up. Yeah. But uh, in Europe, it's taking a lot longer than that. It's taking three to four years to complete the construction. And then obviously, you've got to ramp up on top of that. So don't bet against China, Inc. is uh, is my lesson from 20 years of covering China. <laughs> yeah, no slowdown. We wouldn't expect it, really. Uh, you know, a lot more batteries, gigawatt hours are we haven't turned the terawatt corner yet, so uh, a lot more to come, I guess. But yeah, you have like CLAB commissioned, Asphalt commissioned their factory in Suining this year, uh, this month. When I was covering it like two years ago and reading these announcements, kind of took it with a bit of a pinch of salt, but they are coming online. An interesting sort of um, downstream, so in the EV space, we're starting to see the, the Hongguan Mini lose a bit of luster, I think. The Tesla Model Y is sort of um, doing very well. And also BYD, and I mean, you know, on a on a brand basis, BYD is, is wiping the floor with Tesla because it just has so many models. And I think that opens up a very significant query about sort of Tesla's strategy and its potential to, to gain global market share when it's competing with OEMs effectively that have multiple models. I mean, BYD has nine models in the top 20 selling models in China, and it's wiping the floor with Tesla on a, on a market share basis in China. In Europe, Volkswagen and, and some of the other OEMs, which again have got multiple models, are competing very strongly 
with Tesla, even though on a model-by-model basis, the Model Y and Model 3 are, are great sellers. The sheer number of models that the other OEMs can put into the market is starting to impact Tesla's ability to sort of compete in the top tier. So it'd be very interesting to see how Tesla adapts to that. And I noticed that Elon announced in October that they're looking to develop a small EV product going forward. And I think that'll be an interesting move. I think he stated that in the past as well. They said that they they would do it, and then they said actually it wasn't a priority. But now they've now they've apparently changed their priorities. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. All right, so the, the Cybertruck production is supposed to was supposed to occur this year, and that's going to early next year. But maybe that was a not the best model that Tesla went after, right? So they determined mm-hmm. to get the Cybertruck up and going. Maybe so that's just for one market, right? U.S. market and only a couple of states in the U.S. probably. Maybe they, if they're looking on the global scene, I don't think they're going to sell many Cybertrucks in Europe or, or, or China. But if they uh, went follow the way the market seems to be going to smaller battery packs, smaller size vehicles on a global level, I think that might have been a better a better move. But um, BYD, half their models are hybrid, though. So it's not like for like on, on the sales, even on the sales, pure EV, they're not much more in Tesla in China. I mean, having the hybrids, obviously, which have smaller battery packs, yeah. which uses less lithium, less nickel, et cetera, that's a huge, and, and less, you know, phosphate and everything, that's a huge, huge issue because it's sort of, I'm not going to say alleviating, but perhaps improving the supply-demand imbalance. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Are you suggesting Tesla might get into the hybrid game? I think he's been very clear that they won't. Yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah. and he sees, you know, hybrids as kind of the devil's spawn. I kind of agree with him that electric, fully electric is the way to go. But the problem is in the current environment where we have this potentially very significant supply demand imbalance, you've either got to go fully electric, smaller batteries, or go for a half and half technology. And I think hybrid fits in very well as a half and half technology. Well, the Chinese, you know, BYD leading it, decided, made a conscious decision to, hybrids are a big seller in China for that exact reason. They couldn't ramp up EV production in time or battery production within their um, double carbon 2060 goal range. And they made a conscious decision working with other international players such as Toyota to uh, really develop a hybrid industry in China, which basically has gone from nothing to quite large with BYD at at the Mm. moment. Excellent. Okay. I don't want to move away from China, but um, some really quite substantial cell manufacturing announcements in the US this month as well. Let me see. I have to remind, remind me what we got there. Panasonic breaking ground in Kentucky. Panasonic. Uh, we've got Honda. Oh, and um, Honda. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, quite quite a lot going on, which um, is, is good, yeah. good to see, really. So, yeah, I, I mean, we've got Envision, Envision AES. C adding a, a cylindrical plant in in South Carolina. You've That's for, hi- is that for hybrid. Considering a couple more in the U.S. In fact, the only one that who 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 doesn't seem to be going into the U.S. is CATL, who've been flip flopping around as to whether to go into the U.S. or Mexico or or not to go into that area. And I think they're quite beholden to sort of political issues. With Goshen, and you just reminded me there, I've made a mm-hmm. big announcement also in the. Uh, in in the US as well, cattle plant and, and, and cell manufacturing. Yeah, and I think the the other thing, obviously, to be aware of, which uh, sort of came to the end of October and and into November, 
is this issue of governments trying to secure their regional supply chains. And I'm particularly referring to the Canadian government, which um, made an announcement in October about securing its supply chains and then asked Chinese investors to disinvest in its major shares in lithium projects. So I think, you know, that's an example of the West starting to firm up its stance on Chinese investments. And they're not saying they don't want Chinese money, but they're saying that they don't want Chinese control of assets at the project level. And in many ways, that's very similar to what Australia did three or four years ago. So Australia basically um, forbade Chinese companies to have control of, of assets at the project level. So I think that's the West firming up and saying, look, we, we, you know, we want control of our own raw material supply chains. Yeah, yeah, it was interesting. Lithium Chile, I believe the company called Lithium Ultra, was a Chinese investment in a Canadian lithium miner with an asset in Chile. And they were asked to divest from that. And so interesting, but not, yeah, it's not, not every Chinese investor in Canadian lithium mines has been asked to step aside out of this was the result of a uh, ongoing uh, due diligence uh, by the, uh, I forget the department of the Canadian government, but uh, critical yeah. minerals, something or other. Yeah, it's interesting. And as you said, Aussies made that move a few years ago. And the US, I believe, haven't any, well, they have. I don't think there's any substantial Chinese investment in, in US projects. I mean, they've sort of been at each other's throats for, for a ways now. So, I, yeah, And also yeah. there's not any major you know, US projects because it's so difficult to get planning permission to develop in the US. Sorry, my, I've got a lot of people probably yelling at me now saying, yes, there are some really major US projects, but, and there are, but, you know, in terms of the Chinese, they, they'd rather go and operate in, in other countries where it's easier to develop primary resources than in the US, I think. Yeah. So Canada's got a lot of hard rock they're familiar with. US has got clay and geothermal brands, which they're not any more familiar with than anyone. You know, US is probably, yeah. the US geothermal miners are probably more familiar with that how to work those uh, resources and technology than anyone else perhaps mm-hmm. outside Vulcan but definitely not the Chinese not the area of expertise for sure yeah yeah they're obviously all over Argentina they've obviously got experience with with salar brines themselves or although lower evaporation operations than than are available in um, in Argentina uh, and obviously they've got experience with hard rock having been major investors in in some of the early Australian projects as well. So, and they do their own lipidolite. Well, they do their own hard rock as well, but they do their own uh, lipidolite as well. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, I think that's that's the areas where the Chinese have been focusing focusing on. Yeah, if they get the lipidolite right, then uh, they're going to be a leader in that area, lipidolite lithium mining. But you know, there's deposits elsewhere in the world, but I'm not sure they can be mined as efficiently as the deposits in in China for various reasons. Uh, <laughs> Yes, various various reasons. We'll leave it to that. Various environmental reasons. We'll leave it to that. Having said that, I think there are some very interesting sort of lipidolite deposits in Africa, in in parts of Asia, even in 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 some parts of of Europe, where we could see development, particularly with lithium prices at these levels. And you know, there's the potential for. I mean, the problem with lipidolite has always been waste, but there's obviously the potential for use of these products, we'll call them byproducts, as byproducts, rather than just backfilling them in the hole. Um, And I I think in the Western world, there is substantial opportunity to do that, which potentially makes the the lipidolite of of more interest. Yeah, yeah. It depends how long the uh, lithium prices are going to be this high. Yeah, Yeah. definitely. Okay. Talking about upstream, 
Some very interesting developments, shall we say, on the upstream side in lithium. So you've got two brine project delays announced uh, in October. You've obviously got the delay to the um, Chem project in Argentina. You've got the delay to the Lithium Americas project. You've got Australian shipments of, of spodumene concentrate in, in the third quarter failing to grow on a quarter-on-quarter basis. And it all sort of comes back to this issue of how difficult it is to add supply in this segment. Oh, and I should also mention the, the Salton Sea fiasco, where the, the US government has um, pulled out of supporting the um, Berkshire Hathaway project. So yeah. a lot of people talk about the Salton Sea as, uh, wow, we're going to do 600,000 tons a year of lithium carbonate. Well, Clearly, it's a little bit more difficult than that. And I, I think it comes back to this issue of a lot of generalists in the space thinking that lithium is a commodity and it's really easy to, to bring into production, whereas you know the producers and the developers have, have clearly illustrated over the last sort of three or four years, actually, it's a lot more difficult than that. And I noticed that a couple of sell-side brokers, American brokers who shall remain nameless, came out with slight retractions on their negative viewpoints for lithium in uh, October and early November, which uh, I must say I, I very much enjoyed and may have given the finger to the reports. But, um, <laughs> you know, I think it's, it's uh, both brokers, by the way, are still very negative 12 to 18 months in the future, but they, they're sort of pushing their negativity out because um, yeah, yeah. they overestimated supply. And you, you wonder how long they will continue overestimating supply for before somebody you know, slaps them around the face with a wet kipper and says, look, guys, um, you're getting this wrong. Yeah, well, 2025, 2026, everyone's got fuzzy and you can, you can extend that fuzziness a couple of quarters here or there. So I think it might be e- easier for them to kind of, as you said, barely retract, but still maintain their, their uh, negative outlook in the long term, but saying, oh, in the near future, it's a little bit fuzzy. You know, I, I just look at Albemarle and Livent and, 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 the, and, the, and the big players and, and the difficulties they are having bringing on their capacity and, and they know what they're doing to yeah. a certain extent. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that's the case in point. And uh, a certain US broker is, is flagging backward-looking pricing data from Latin America when the current market is telling us that lithium is very, very tight and, and spot prices are, uh, are going up. So, you know, why you would flag realized export prices in sort of September when we're in November is, is just uh, is amazing to me. And, you know, there are so many moving parts in those numbers. I mean, we yeah. don't know whether that producer is selling material on spot or on contracts. Yeah. You know, if it's on legacy contracts, that's going to pull the price down. We don't know what quality of material that producer is selling. We know for a fact that some of the producers in Latin America only produce about 60% battery grade material. So if they're selling low quality material, obviously they're going to be selling it for a lower price. And that's going to drag your your average realized price down. So there's so much about that data set that we don't know. And yeah, I mean, using that backward looking data is an indicator for what's going to happen going forward. To me, just seems daft. Yeah, that was a bit of a strange month. All right. Just reading the Chinese media, uh, they were referred to the materials that were being shipped out and the lower priced materials that are being imported 
were lithium sulfate chemicals. And uh, I don't understand what that might have been lost in translation, but I'm not right. sure what that term is supposed to mean. Any idea? I know that a number of sort of actually hard rock players are looking at producing sort of lithium sulfate as an intermediate product. I'm not aware of any of the um, brine producers. That was their brine, yeah. 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 So maybe lost in translation. I, I, that's what I was thinking, but uh, bringing it up to, yeah, so the little drop in the price and apparently these lithium sulfate materials, whatever that's supposed to mean. But yeah, it was interesting, all right. Bit of a slow month in China again, though. Yeah. On the spodumene side, import, imports barely went up and... Uh, they don't import hydroxide, really, obviously. And, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think what, one of the, the, obviously, the things to be aware of is that after the power issues in sort of July or September, we have seen Chinese domestic lithium carbonate supply ratcheting up, lithium hydroxide supply ratcheting up. So it's possible that that's one of the reasons why exports from Chile fell. I mean, the other possible reason why exports from Chile fell is that the producers might have rushed to get material out into the high price environment and might might now be producing sort of hand to mouth. I mean, if, yeah. if you look at the huge exports from Chile, there was only one month when exports really, really popped up. Just looking at my um, BMR, you, uh, they, they really popped up in, um, in May. They went yeah. to, to over 25,000 tons, but for the rest of the year, they've only averaged around 15, 15 to 17,000 tons. Yeah. So, you know, it's quite possible that they pushed out all of the high-grade material in their stockpile yeah. in May and June, and, and now they're effectively running hand-to-mouth. So we, we really don't know. Yeah, that was a bit of a spike. It looked like a bit of a double month. They didn't get mm. anything in May, but they did really... I think there was a few issues going on uh, during that uh, during that time. Um, there was the lockdowns in Shanghai. They didn't maybe require that much material. Yeah, but that was as tw- yeah that was twice double the normal monthly capacity. But um, you know, you traditionally there's the run on towards the end of the year here uh, in, in China, also, and was expected to be a huge run with subsidies, tax credits running out for EV purchases. But that's being extended till next year again. Excuse me, annually extended. Yeah, we've talked about that before, haven't we? That that's uh, that's always comes towards the it's been the, extended since twenty fourteen. Yeah, it still drops a certain percentage, uh, of course. But so uh, interesting to see the numbers. I, I don't know if you've seen them, but uh, I have. I just put it on LinkedIn last night. Uh, Four point two seven million pure EVs produced in China thus far until October. Wow, that's amazing, isn't it? It is amazing. The numbers are, are astronomical um, in China at the moment. I mean, you know, a few commentators are showing, are suggesting that probably the rate of growth next year will will be smaller, and uh, you know that we've got to expect that it will be because I don't think that you could carry on growing at that sort of growth rate that we've seen in two thousand and twenty one and two thousand and twenty two. I'm I mean, not sure. I'm not expecting the story to be over, but possibly the rate of growth will slow, and and that would be perfectly normal. I mean, you know, I've got yeah. a slower rate of growth in for 2023 anyway on on raw material availability, so I'm I'm not you know too worried about what we're going to see next year. And and I think the other thing to be aware of that, that perhaps people aren't really factoring into their models is the huge acceleration in ESS demand, so stationary storage demand for batteries. Yeah. 
you know, we're seeing guys having to raise their forecasts really substantially. And I mean, you know, one of the things that I flagged in, in Battery Materials Review this month is the huge broad-based political support base for, for stationary storage. I mean, just in October alone, we saw Turkey pushing out its plans for stationary storage, for battery storage. We saw Chile passing a bill to incentivize deployment of stationary storage. We saw a report by Energy Storage Canada pushing stationary storage. We saw the US and India announcing plans to form a a joint task force. We saw New Jersey following on from announcements by California and New York in, in terms of a target. You know, last month we saw some pretty significant targets from Australian states. And then we also saw the, e, uh, the European Commission come in and, and, and state that ESS is going to play a key role. So the magnitude of the ramp up that we're, we're seeing in stationary storage at the moment is really, really substantial. And I think it's keeping, it's catching a lot of people by surprise. Yeah. I did a study in it recently, and uh, I'm looking at U.S. energy storage could account for 30% of the U.S. Uh, lithium-ion battery demand uh, in 2030. Before, energy storage was, um, was taught, as you mentioned, insignificant. It was like 5%, 10% was the forecast. But in this is U.S., which is obviously a slightly different market. Mm. Up to 30% of it, that's huge. And yeah. one of these factories announced in the U.S. is for energy storage batteries which is yeah, only one yeah yeah i, I mean it, it is amazing i mean you know the the bulk of of energy storage batteries now lfp and it sort of comes back to this issue of the lfp supply chain and and um ex china nobody's really building it out so um you know either we're going to be supplying the bulk of our lfp batteries continuing to supply the bulk of our lfp batteries for um ess from from china or somebody better start pulling the trigger on some phosphate projects and some uh, iron sulfate and um, and some more lithium projects and graphite projects. Let's get going, kids. What I think is going to happen, there's so much NMC capacity coming out in the US and with the domestic supply rules. NMC works just as good as LFP. If you have a lot of NMC, you, you can mm. use it. But yeah, I mean, if, if you've got it. But the problem is, obviously, if your NMC batteries are going to be trading at a, a premium to, to LFP batteries, yeah. That then impacts the economics of your battery buyers, and I think that that's the key issue. And I mean, we still need, you know, particularly for residential storage, we still need ESS system prices to go down, and they trade a lot more on a dollars right. per kilowatt hour basis than EV batteries do because we just yeah, haven't, yeah. haven't got to the economies of scale yet. So they're they're trading at what two or three times the cost on a, on a at least double basis? at least at least double. Residential is probably three or four times, you know, less yeah. batteries buy the more expensive. Grid energy storage is at least double. Big reason is uh, it's about buying power. So yeah. Yeah, many, uh, the automakers can buy a lot more or agree to buy a lot more uh, than it's energy storage is done by a per project basis. So you order 500 megawatts, whatever you're ordering uh, for that particular project. And Energy storage is, you know, you're buying the whole unit. If you, you can talk about cell price or you can talk about the energy storage unit price, which, you know, is a lot more auxiliary, auxiliary components required than in. Um, but uh, as you said, energy storage is a lot more cost sensitive because it's investment in a project that you're making money on. 
and consumers are willing to buy cars with ev cars and you know they're not making money on on the battery storing and they might not be they could be at one one stage making whether the battery storing and releasing energy back into the grid energy storage cells are a lot, a lot more expensive basically than uh, i can you know some of the other analyst reports where they give battery forecast price are are based on uh, ev pricing you know that you see the 130 dollars per kilowatt hour or 70, sometimes you see in the case of uh, LFP, it would be, uh, if you see the same same for ESS, you're looking at like anywhere between 200, which would be good per dollars per kilowatt hour to 400 in some cases. Yeah, and I mean, you know, that's that's got to come down, certainly on the residential side, that's got to come down if we're going to get um, stronger residential demand. Of course, you know, what price back out power if, uh, if there's going to be power cuts and, you know, people in California and, Potentially, people in Europe going forward uh, uh, are waking up to the potential for um, battery storage. So, um, yeah. you know, maybe they're happy to pay above what they pay for for EV storage. But um, realistically, if we're going to get mass market on residential, we need some further fall in price. I think yeah, residential has been big in Europe, obviously this year. This year, yeah, yeah, yeah that. it's been a huge. Take up on energy storage units, regardless of the cost in Europe. Not, not you know, not not everyone, but uh, certain countries are are are, are stockpiling, are investing in. Well, it. I mean, it, you know, I think the last time we had this 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 worry about power cuts in Europe was in the seventies, and, and and let's face it, our um, our lives are a lot more dependent on on electricity and power now than they were in the seventies. Yeah, how are you going to do the podcast? <laughs> yeah, we can't do the podcast. People can't listen to the podcast. More importantly, yeah, yeah that, uh, you know, you have uh, to hire out a theater. <laughs> yeah, I don't think people would pay to see us, mate. I'm, I'm sorry, <laughs> but <laughs> okay. On that note, let's end it for this month, and I'll say uh, thanks very much to Cormac, and look forward to speaking to you next month. Bye bye. So that brings us to the end of our podcast for November. As always, you can get more detail on any of the topics we've discussed in the latest issue of Battery Materials Review, which you can find at www.batterymaterialsreview.com. I'm Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and this has been Recharge. Thanks for listening. <laughs>